I'm done with COVID. Oh, I'm done. If COVID is starting to look like a regular respiratory virus, is it rational for us to treat it like something completely different? and to disrupt our lives in all these big and consequential ways. Mm -hmm. Perhaps this isn't a war. Maybe this used to be a war. Maybe we used to be at war with a virus, but it doesn't feel like a war anymore because a war implies defeating an enemy. And where we are at now, for many, is it's time to learn to live with the enemy, right? The reframing. And that actually, to continue to treat this as a war against COVID, is to perhaps further divide this country. Because right now, who are being more risk-averse than others, are going to come along and acclimate themselves to the new normal. Mm -hmm. Now, I know that many boosted people will say, look, I'm not worried about myself. I'm worried about infecting others. And that shows an admirable concern for others. the death panel patrons thank you so much for supporting the show we could not do any of this without you if you'd like to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore so epidemiologist abby cardis is back today joining Artie, phil and i to talk about two big things that happened sort of simultaneously which show just how far some people are going to attempt to construct a sociological reality in which people who are, you know, quote, vexed and relaxed can be officially done with COVID. So first, <laughs> we're going to talk about a recent flurry of COVID minimizing from The New York Times, from David Leonhardt's Two COVID Americas to the very painful two-part daily podcast special, quote, We Need to Talk About COVID, that featured Leonhardt and Anthony Fauci. And then we're going to check in on a group of experts who refuse to see the lack of COVID mitigation around us and instead <laughs> see lockdowns every time a school has to close because too many teachers and staff are out sick. Yeah, so when it, whenever, <laughs> whenever someone invokes, whenever someone says the word COVID, COVID-19 or coronavirus, that's a lockdown. It is. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it is. You know, there are just so many forms of lockdown, as, as we'll get into. But so these people who are really ahead of the done with COVID curve and have been for a while, like our good old friend, Dr. Lucy McBride, um, have created a toolkit called the urgency of normal to help push towards a more urgent normal, I guess. Yeah. Um, you know, so we'll talk about how like that, how, how ridiculous some of the claims are made <laughs> in that document. But, yeah. yeah, you know, normality is urgent. So. All joking aside, let's start with David Leonhardt's Two COVID Americas, which is just his latest attempt to draw attention to basically what he wants you to think is an impending and threatening dangerous phenomenon, which is more pressing than anti-vaxxers and people who refuse to mask, which he frames as this kind of other side of COVID denialism. That's the people who just won't quit COVID, who are, you know, addicted to lockdown, or his favorite phrase, irrationally anxious about risk, you know, to the point that they're too afraid to embrace 
the much needed healthier back to 2019 normal program. Yeah, I mean, I think in a lot of ways, this is kind of an old story, if that makes sense. Or I mean, it's like, you know, it it has shades of so many of these things that we've talked about for a long time. But I do think it's really interesting that, you know, for example, as early as I think like 20 days ago, as of this day of recording, there was, uh, you know, I mean, speaking of the New York Times, there was like a the daily episode that was like, uh, wait, what happened? I thought Omicron was milder or, or whatever. <laughs> and then now basically really the drumbeat is like, okay, this is kind of the final. We're, we're like over the final hump, uh, which as we'll talk about, I think has been kind of something that has been the declaration kind of every time cases have started going down to any degree. Yeah. Anytime the line's not going vertical, then it's always already over. And, and it's always like the time to like stop doing masking. It's always the time to be like, oh, well, we don't have to worry about everything. Everything's normal. I'm, you know, again, as we as we talked about, I'm, I'm done with COVID or whatever. Meanwhile, the, you know, obviously like the official policy is what uh, I just want to shout out the death panel discord server, what the discord server has termed the Beyblade <laughs> strategy. Do you guys know about Beyblade. Uh, for listeners who may uh, who may not know, think of like that old commercial, like Crossfire. And for the for those who remember Beyblade, uh, the Hasbro tagline was three, two, one, let it rip. Right there, you go. So it's per- you know it's perfect. Um, but yeah, to I mean to you know to listen to these people talk or to read, for instance, like uh, the Leonhart column. It's not only. It's it's similar to what we've been talking about recently. It's not only like, okay, just, you know, we, we kind of calmly have to collect ourselves and soberly admit that, like, we're back to normal or whatever. It's also like they're fed up, like they can't wait for this. They can't wait for people to, like, come uh, to this normality. Uh, they say that basically, like, continuing to worry about it is irrational or whatever. And, you know, these things do have consequences, not only because of like, obviously, the stuff we talk about with hegemony all the time, where, you know, these narratives get compounded, and then like some of them filter up to power. We also have very literal indications that they Mm. are filtering up to power as like this week, a report in Politico mentioned specifically that like, uh, Biden reads Leonhardt's column and that he feels that he, uh, quote, is saying some things that need to be said to those Americans who are excessively cautious even after vaccination. Yeah, unquote. I mean, it's which is funny because for a long time, you know, we've discussed Leonhardt's commitment to painting the Biden response to the pandemic as a whole as favorable, no matter how little it seemingly reflects the current conditions or, you know, case spreads in communities or the level of daily deaths, you know, Omicron is mild and yet we're having just, you know, shy of 3,000, 4,000 mild deaths a day right now. No big deal, right? And Abby, as you put it recently in a call between the four of us, uh, you called Leonhardt the Biden administration's chief propagandist, explaining that the political function of Leonhardt's editorial policy seems to literally be to just paint the Biden response in the best light instead of saying, you know, this is or this isn't true or this is and this isn't relevant for readers to understand or protect themselves or to protect their communities from COVID. The guiding principle is really like it seems to be like, does this or does this not reflect the reality that Lee and Hart himself and also people in the administration want to see? You know, if it doesn't, if it doesn't look like something that's a path to, frankly, pre-2016 normal then it's not really welcome within Leonhardt's sort of political imaginary of what the range of quote-unquote sane responses to this pandemic could be. Yeah, so the impression that I get from reading 
David Leonhard, especially now, right, over the past few days and engaging with this kind of like discourse that has sprung up is that David Leonhard for The New York Times has been relentlessly propagandizing, you know, for basically as long as I've been paying attention in the pandemic, especially over the past few years, right? Like, think about how much we got hammered with the message that Omicron was milder. Yeah. Right. Like we were basically I mean, like. Not to be dramatic, but we were basically, you know, forced almost like under duress to travel as normal, to do things normally over the holidays, which certainly (laughs) resulted in more cases, right? And more Mm -hmm. hospitalization and more death. So he's been this kind of relentless minimizer of the threat that COVID faces. But now over like the past three or four days, the timber is very much like, well, why aren't they why aren't they taking why isn't my propaganda like taking root? Right. Like, right. <laughs> why are like why are the Democrats that read The New York Times like still, you know, expressing some hesitancy about about returning to every like aspect of their normal lives prior to the pandemic? And it's just like, well, yeah. I mean, though, though he's been on the beat for months, right, of saying that people are sort of irrationally anxious, he really upped the ante by commissioning a poll of 4,400 Americans to investigate the ideological tribalism, his words, behind yeah. the differences in COVID beliefs. And what he claims to have found is that, you know, basically, quote, People's attitudes towards risk don't seem to be driven by a rational thought or scientific evidence so much as it seems to be driven by political belief. And so that was really the basis for this to COVID America's newsletter, which tried to sort of flesh out something that he's really just hypothesized and gestured at for months now, which is this idea that, you know, there is a political tribal aspect to COVID that sort of is the biggest threat to, uh, you know, I guess the survival of society. And then that's, of course, reproduced through the New York Times publicity machine into, you know, this appearance on the daily. And of course, this will be mentioned and like, boosted and blasted out in addition to the, you know, 5 million readers that he has, as well as the attention of, you know, the Biden administration. No, it's fascinating to me because the thing that Leonhard has been doing for the last year, and and Artie has assiduously clocked this, is regardless of what's happening in epidemiological trend lines, the Leonhardt column framing is essentially the same. Now, what he's done here is, I I think, a very different project, which is to say, let's abandon, in fact, looking at epidemiological trend lines full stop. Let's not look at them. And let's use a completely different base of evidence as the anchor to make decisions about what the state of the world is, rather than looking Mm -hmm. at the pandemic itself as an epidemiological phenomenon let's go to the polls let's do let's get a morning consult poll let's buy ourselves a poll <laughs> let's buy ourselves a poll right and let's use the answers to that poll and i should also note a very reductive analysis of those answers as i really want to get into this yeah. because what he makes of this poll is absurd given what you can actually go to the the top lines and see what the actual responses are which are very different Mm -hmm. but like if i could summarize what i think he's trying to say in this he's he's trying to this is his image of the country there are two discrete 
and insular types of communities, separate from one another, not affecting one another in any way. On the one hand, communities that are vastly not vaccinated, primarily ideologically conservative, and not really treating the risks of COVID seriously at all. On the other hand, again, completely insular, separate from those communities and not affecting them and not being affected by them are communities that are primarily vaccinated, ideologically left of center and over correcting for the virus. That's his argument. And we should talk about what is and isn't in the data like that. But that, yeah, yeah. to be clear, that is his argument. And I think just even on its face, we, we don't even have to look at the data. I think because well, it's like opinion polling. Anyway, that, ar- that like, argument doesn't pass. That argument doesn't pass on the first instance of inspection because it neglects tons of cities yeah. that primarily vote for Biden and where vaccination rates to say nothing of rates of boosted, but like vaccination rates are hovering in the just above 50% range. My own city, for example, Indianapolis, Detroit, there are many others. Okay. So like you don't have to get even that much deeper to say that's an absurd claim. Yeah. It doesn't explain the reality of many people um, in this country and the whole insularity thing makes no sense. Well, also wait, what are the metrics he's asking about again? Like, are you worried about it? What's your anxiety level? Like that's not a, like how that's not certain really a relevant. you are, whether or not the COVID pandemic will like ever people's, end. People's is the emotions first about the, vi- about the virus are not really the point. Yes. Right. Right. Which, but he's, he's trying to make it the point. Right. And through this, like appeal to low individual risk on average. Right. He just kind of seems to keep coming back to that as like the basis for this tale that (laughs) that the New York Times is spinning about how truly, you know, Democrats or people who are left leaning who are still, for example, like saying that they perhaps wear a mask or like are still worried about covid. What he's doing is saying that those people are as unscientific, that they are as anti-science as like hardcore Republican anti-vaxxers. And like the linchpin of that argument is this appeal to low individual risk, which I mean, this kind of connects to what you were saying, Phil. So like this is maybe illustrated by uh, something that that Leonhard spends in the article and in the accompanying daily podcast. He spends a lot of time on this um, is this finding from the polling that, you know, young people, younger people self-report about the same level of anxiety, you know, (laughs) about COVID or report being, you know, anxious or concerned about catching COVID at roughly the same proportion as older people. And, you know, to Leonhardt, this is like just totally unbelievable, right? He can't wrap his his mind around how um, irrational this is. And like, I think there are kind of three reasons or three three points here. Like the first is truly who cares what someone else's feeling about COVID is. Number two, you know, losing for younger people, losing work to illness can be catastrophic, right? So like risk of hospitalization and death is like not the only factor here. And for someone who loves to talk about costs and trade-offs that much, you know, you would think that David Leonhard could maybe acknowledge that. But The third point, which he doesn't really address, is concern for others. And what I was I was thinking about this is like they want to teach us to stop caring about getting unvaccinated people sick. And they think that's a morally defensible position because everyone, they say, has had the chance to get vaccinated by now. 
But my my issue is, and this goes back to what Phil was saying, right? Not every, well, first of all, not everybody who is vulnerable to the virus is unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. And secondly, you know, I am not like I'm not from a New York Times family. Like I'm from Pittsburgh, which is like a pretty <laughs> a pretty you know like Phil like can tell you it's like a pretty Reagan Dem like blue collar town. And like what my question is like, well, what if this unvaccinated person is your parent, right? Like I know a lot of people that are in that situation and like aren't necessarily to a point of wanting to like cut off contact with their, you know what I mean? So like what he's doing is calling the move by people that are living in these communities that are not just like Republican bubbles, right? Or like super anxious, you know, progressive or democratic minded bubbles. Like he's basically saying to these people, like if you're masking because you're worried about, you know, your your unvaccinated mom who's like a Trumper that you see, (laughs) you know, however many times like you're being unscientific, like and you should just unmask and like let, you know, your mom, your unvaccinated mom live with the consequences of her choice. And that is really crazy like that well is, i mean um, also the claim that a lot of these people are making um i think it, we i mentioned on the show recently like someone from like the intercept made this claim recently too that like the idea that everyone who you know could possibly be persuaded or whatever is like is now vaccinated and that the only remaining holdouts are entirely ideological mm-hmm. is like absolutely not necessarily true i mean even just what like phil you were re- recently even just looking at the skew right and it's like it overwhelmingly like people like the um, vaccination rates are like they skew lower in lower income areas in right? lower income in lower income counties, regardless of the partisan uh, flip of the county. Right. Right mm-hmm. now. Yeah. Like I'm not going to deny there is a Trump effect and it's basically a flat line, regardless of poverty rate in the county. When you have a really, really high share of like Trump vote in in 2020, you've got a much lower rate of vaccination, but the line is negative in the Biden counties too. Uh, When you have a higher rate of poverty, fewer people get vaccinated. And that's something that Leonhardt is completely uninterested in. Yeah. And he's completely uninterested in any claim aside from the one that treats partisan identity as a more or less immutable characteristic (laughs) and an immutable disposition towards the virus, towards vaccines, and so on. Incidentally, in doing so, in, in, in making this claim, there's all kinds of data that are in the poll that he has to neglect, he has to Mm -hmm. not talk about. For example, 68% of the respondents in the poll said that they think it's a good idea to require masks in public schools. 66% of the respondents say that there should be social distancing in public schools. 67% of the respondents suggest there should be limits on the number of people in public spaces. 55% say that we should require vaccinations. I could go on. So even his All of these are the top lines. Poll. And of course, yeah. if you listen, he uses partisanship as this index for a variety of other things. It could be the case that he's finding that Democrat or young relationship between risk aversion for reasons that are completely unrelated to partisanship per se, but are, as Abby said, maybe younger people are afraid because they're worried about losing days of work. Maybe they're worried about it because they have different, a variety of different dispositions towards other people or towards the community that has, you know, so, so like this, this, this ideological or partisan like element, it, it treats people as as very uncomplicated 
it it actually does the tribalism thing that he claims to exist. So it sounds like what, Phil, you were just saying is that, you know, the results of this poll could be broken down along income lines just as easily as they could be broken down along partisan lines. And the fact that David Leonhardt has chosen partisan lines, right? It's, I mean, actually, it's, it's kind of a neat meta lesson about how socially embedded, right, the processes of like collecting and reporting data mm-hmm. are. Because <laughs> um, that is just a choice that David Leonhardt made, right, was to stratify the data by political affiliation. Um, and I think he really makes some conjectures on the basis of this poll that are pretty wildly out of bounds. So, you know, he finds, we all know it's there, a partisan split in attitudes about COVID. But on the basis of this, okay, this is what something that he wrote in the New York Times piece. This is the conclusion that he draws from this poll of, you know, 4,400 people, whatever. He says, millions of Democrats have decided that organizing their lives around COVID is core to their identity as progressives. (laughs) Even as pandemic isolation and disruption are fueling mental health problems, drug overdoses, you know, and a host of other social ills. So, I mean, you can, re- at least to my mind, I can really see crime wave, like hand waving in the, yeah, like the uh, knockout the game. Like, oh, yeah. It's bring like it all in there. The equivalent of standing on the side of the road with a sign that says, like, society is going to end. <laughs> yeah. Know? But he, you know, he's he's. I, I would get in trouble, right, in my job as an epidemiologist if I collected data from a sample of, you know, 4,400 people, (laughs) asked them to fill out some survey questions, right, about their attitudes towards the pandemic, and then made an argument about, like, the mental state of millions of Democrats, Right, you and would like, get an economics degree. Yeah, made an, <laughs> yes. yeah, exactly. Do not get a column in the New York Times. Funny you should say but, it's know, like he, that's David Leonhardt started as like a sports polling person, oh like a God. sports statistic person. All, no, that's, I, all the dumb guys did. They all do. I mean, I I remember when I I listened to the podcast and I read the article and I was like, you know, isn't this over interpreting just a little bit? Like it feels like he's shellacking this like preformed interpretation on top of these data. Again, a meta lesson Mm -hmm. about how, you know, date like data are a socially mediated like product. But I just get the impression that, you know, David Leonhard, uh, Michael Barbaro, who's the host of the daily. um, There was another COVID episode of the daily today. And like Michael Barbaro, Sounded like he was going to burst into tears asking Anthony Fauci, like, how long, you know, vaccinated (laughs) Americans are going to have to continue to put up with this. Yeah. And the thing that I take away from all of this is that, like, these people just, like, want a permission slip so bad. Like, (laughs) there is, you know, like, there is nothing stopping them from living their lives as normal except for the coronavirus, which is, like, you know, sickening maybe a lot of teachers in their kids' schools or whatever. But, like, they will not stop complaining about it. <laughs> and they, I mean, I feel like they're not going to stop until they get, like, a special, like, let, like on the president's letterhead from Biden being like, yeah. no, it's, it's good. It's okay if you just, like, <laughs> I go mean, back to normal. But it, <laughs> at a certain point in the interview with Fauci, Barbaro asks him if he's ever going to get up and give a press conference giving the world permission to yeah, go back to normal. Like, like, explicitly permission. permission. Says, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah and, and it's, it's like, like, stop being a dork. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just totally you know? reflects the kind of attitude that's like just on full display in the Leonhardt interview, which is like, this kind of idea that like, oh, yeah, you know, the people who are dying are unvaccinated people. They've made this choice. 
And anyone that's worried about risk sort of beyond their own individual health, you know, that's admirable, but that is not following science. Um, There's this quote, which I'll read real quick, that just drove me absolutely up the wall. David Leonhardt says, The science says vaccines are very effective at preventing serious COVID illness. So if you believe the science, it doesn't argue only for getting vaccinated. It also argues for living your life in a way that reflects you've been vaccinated. Now, I know that many boosted people will say, look, I'm not worried about myself. I'm worried about infecting others. And that shows an admirable concern for others. Well, but the thing to remember is is that those other people have also had the opportunity to get vaccinated. And the data suggests that for vaccinated people, Omicron looks a lot like other common respiratory illnesses. As we've said, it's usually mild, but it can be rough on elderly and immune compromised people. Boom. Just right there. That whole two paragraph saying COVID prevents, you know, extreme disease over and over and over to just land on. Oh, yeah. Right. Just soft mention of elderly and immune compromised people at the very end to tick that box. Well, I love how like the the idea that COVID will eventually evolve into like a, a cuddly little virus that only gives you the sniffles or whatever <laughs> has become. Actually, it's already done that. Yeah. Uh, and it is already just sort of a, you know, I mean, that that's so much of what the mild discourse is. Anyway, right. right. I guess I always judge people's impressions of the world by how um, in a place they seem to be, like whether or not they actually describe places where things occur. And <laughs> I, I guess it's like when you do a poll like this, you mean a pink berry function, in Midtown is like the pink berry in Midtown, um, you know, but the 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 uh, it. It occurs to me that when you do a poll like this, one function of that is to completely disembody and to disemplace events that are occurring. So I I just I very like my my genuine, sincere question, you know, to somebody like Leonhardt is, okay. so so what do you think about the state of hospitals today? What do you say? Well, like, what's your what's your take well, exactly on how well things are going there and, and what might be causing that? And and do you how would you feel if the strategy that you're suggesting here is the right one to take the appropriate one in terms of risk? How would you feel if that actually contributed to uh, the worsening of the situation? Like, he has nothing to say about that. Well, he has no he has no collective perspective at all. Right. Um, just like one quick point on like the data generalist like type of pundit. This has become like the go to answer, you know, when people like criticize David Leonhardt or people like Emily Oster for not having any expertise in this. They come back with, well, you know, like we're just, you know, we're quantitative. Like we just uh, we know how to how to look at data, like how to analyze data. But I'm not so sure that's the case because, you know, going going briefly back to this poll that was commissioned by The New York Times. Another thing that David Leonhard makes a really big deal of is the fact that people who self-report that they have gotten a booster shot also <laughs> self-report that they take COVID a lot more seriously. And to him, this is like the most puzzling thing this in the like world. This is like anathema. Yeah. And you know, like, yeah. I know that subject Lean matter experts, paradox. as as Matt Iglesias said, subject matter experts, we may know stuff, but, you know, we just don't have the, the broad perspective of a generalist expert. But <laughs> any epidemiologist could look at that polling question and tell you that this is a clear case of confounding by indication, right? It's the right. same way that like, yes. CC section delivery sometimes looks like it's associated with death in childbirth, but it's not right. Like there's, (laughs) there's another thing that like 
sometimes, uh, you know, something goes super wrong, you know, there's a severe complication in a delivery, and then it's indicated to, you know, deliver via C-section immediately, right? Like, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, well, yeah, boosted, right. people who've gotten their boosters, they got them because they <laughs> are motivated. Because they're more concerned them. about COVID, like they're more right. motivated. I mean, I was rereading old Politico coverage uh, from 2013 of when he like was uh, let go from being the Washington bureau chief of the New York Times um, and started moving into the more like op-ed space. And there's this article that said, uh, quote, Leonhardt is now expected to oversee a column that will focus on data and polling, effectively replacing Nate Silver. One source described Leonhardt as the paper's, quote, next Nate Silver or another as the <laughs> new Nate. Oh, boy. So the he comes Nate. from... He, you know, since 2013, his beat at the New York Times has been specifically to use data and polling to replace Nate Silver, which is really just sort of like to provide partisan analysis for the New York Times, right? right? That relies on this narrative of being a data-driven kind of analysis. It's funny that yeah, I was reading his rereading his book about the deficit from 2013, oh and the conclusion that he comes to is, you know, Republicans are right about the taxes side, and Democrats are right about the spending side, you know? <laughs> what? It's like, you know, everybody, you know, oh everybody's got to give it. It's like just awesome. Um, so, Abby, I want to bring us back to something that you mentioned uh, earlier, which is that it seems like Leonhardt is just kind of like folding his uh, current opinions around his like his priors, basically, like around mm -hmm. his, his, you know, his already ingrained opinions of how things are going on. And to that end, I posted about this, but basically like in preparation for this discussion, I realized we hadn't kind of given Leonhardt the profile treatment. The full death If panel. you will. Right. And while most of that is largely not, you know, I'm not super interested in a lot of like what Leonhardt was doing before or some of his non-COVID coverage, but I think... Right. But I think if we just look at the scope of his COVID coverage in the first place, um, I want to lead us through a couple of things. One is that, for instance, like uh, just just to like just, just to sort of um, establish for you right off the bat kind of where this is probably going. I want to read for you just a couple lines from a piece that he released March 18th, 2021, which may sound familiar to the conversation that we're having here. So March 18th, 2021, he released a newsletter called COVID's Partisan Errors, <laughs> where he argued, uh, quote, Republicans tend to underestimate COVID's risks and Democrats tend to exaggerate them. See, this is why so, I'm not even joking when I say so David Leonhardt went out and bought a poll to say what he had already been saying. Right. Well, uh, let me let me take us on a little journey, though, oh, if, if you will. Um, yes, I, uh, I promise this won't take too long, but I think it actually all the stuff that we're talking about with regards to Leonhardt is only really going to be supported by some of the stuff that I'm uh, about to bring in. I looked at I basically read every newsletter of his from the last two years that mentioned COVID, which is most of them, although some of them are just like tiny mentions or whatever, like little updates or like a link mm -hmm. to some whatever. But what emerged really quickly was um, a couple of really obvious things, um, some really obvious stuff. Like, for example, he has said like four separate times during the pandemic that uh, COVID appears to be in retreat. That's February 11th, 2021, literally headline <laughs> of his uh, newsletter, Pandemic in Retreat. May 21st, 2021, he tweeted out, uh, COVID may now be in permanent retreat in the U.S. <laughs> um, October 4th, 2021, COVID in retreat. Again, the same headline, basically, uh, for his uh, 
for his uh, morning newsletter. And just recently, January 19th, 2022, Omicron is in retreat. What's next? So right, and not to mention I'm just the imagining of- the, uh, the Orson Welles, like, the, you know, the, the march of like the, the headlines and stuff, except it's just the same headline the same every headline. time. Leonhardt like- in retreat. <laughs> <There's-> <laughs> but I mean, this is also not to mention the amount of times that then the New York Times reproduces these headlines within its own other yeah. COVID coverage, no, too, exactly. because they've created this like reflection machine to like amplify and reproduce, especially David's like morning newsletter on COVID. Right. And so anyway, uh, the other the other thing that became really clear to me is the first thing I'm going to get into, which is a very clear distinction that happens pre Biden and post Biden. So during the Trump year of the pandemic and then sort of after. And it's a really clear line. So, for example, let me present to you guys what David Leonhardt's newsletter sounded like October 6th, 2020. under Trump. That's the week the Great Barrington Declaration was announced. Lovely. This particular newsletter was called Rational Fear. Ah, I didn't even know he knew that word. (laughs) Quote, don't be afraid of COVID. President Trump tweeted on the same day that the White House outbreak spread further and another several hundred Americans died from virus complications. Given Trump's campaign to make the virus seem like a minor inconvenience, I think it's worth (laughs) taking a minute this morning to take stock of the virus. And then he like lists a bunch of accurately scary facts and figures about the virus. Um, I just think that that is an interesting thing for him to have said campaign to make the virus seem like a minor inconvenience. Yeah. Because, you know, January 4th, 2021, he writes a piece called The Virus is Still Winning, noting as, quote, as I've explained before, the biggest factor that will determine how many more people die from the virus isn't likely to be the precise effectiveness of the vaccines or even the speed of the rollout. The biggest factor instead is likely to be how much we reduce the spread of the virus over the next few months. What do you know? Uh, What do you know? Where did that narrative go? Yeah. Who knows? Uh... But uh, the moment, the eve of the Biden presidency, a shift. So it's even before the vaccine. It's like, well, it's, it's like, like during the rollout, I guess. Yeah, okay. it's as the rollout is, ha- is, it's as the rollout is beginning. Okay. But I think this, consider while I'm delivering the, some of the following, for example, first of all, how similar some of the things I'm about to say sound to literally stuff that he's written in the last couple of weeks. Um, and second, just how I think this shows pretty clearly that basically... Leonhart is emblematic of a certain type of liberal who really stopped giving a shit the moment that Biden became president. Right. Who really stopped okay. giving a shit about COVID. And whether it's causal or not, there's certainly like clearly a chilling effect that happens in his commentary in late January and he suddenly shifts right. perspectives. So January 18th, basically on the eve of or not on the eve exactly, but you know, three days from Biden's inauguration writes a post called Underselling the Vaccine. Mm. Quote, right now, public discussion of vaccines is full of warnings about their limitations. They're not 100% effective. Even vaccinated people may be able to spread the virus and people shouldn't change their behavior once they get their shots. Uh, Quote, it's driving me a little bit crazy, Dr. Ashish Jha, dean of the Brown School of Public (laughs) Health, told me. He then says, uh, although no rigorous study has yet analyzed whether vaccinated people can spread the virus, it would be surprising if they did. 
On Twitter, Dr. Monica Gandhi of the uh. University of California, San Francisco argued, please be assured that you are safe after, vac- after vaccine from what matters, disease and spreading. So already basically like inculcating way before there's any data on this and before we know a lot about breakthrough infections, basically saying like, nah, don't worry about it. Like it's not going to, breakthroughs are not going to be a thing, right? Okay. Once Biden is in office. I mean, January 28th, 2021, the headline of his uh, newsletter is a fall in virus cases. Like, yes, cases were lower at that point, but it was still we were still at like, you know, 2000 some deaths a day. And honestly, this is about when he started really picking up on my radar was this one about minimizing the discussion around like the vaccine efficacy. Right. right? Because from. Basically, from the point of like November, where we were starting to see interim analysis come in from the vaccine trials, I started to get worried that it really seemed like nobody was looking at one, what was going to happen when you started vaccinating an immune compromised population, right? Because everything was like doing things in the standard trial way of really looking at putting things only in really healthy people, clinically speaking. And it was at this point where you were already seeing in like November, December, January, this real attitude of like the distinction of like if you critique what we aren't looking at with the vaccine or you critique the sort of blinding optimism of the vaccine only strategy that you're like engaging in some sort of like thought crime of like vaccine minimization. Well, no, and, well, and this is the thing, though, it's like not anti-vaccine uh, to like want additional mitigations on top of the vaccine, which, as we've talked about, layering NPIs literally increases vaccine efficacy. Right. right yep. It, what is actually anti-vaccine is demanding that the vaccine do all the work like that's anti like Absolutely. science or whatever. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. The So in this January 28th, 2021 morning newsletter, he writes, the only one line from this that's important is, quote, we may be in the very early stages of herd immunity. January 28th, 2021. Wow. If that, okay, you know, I'm, I recognize a variety of people may be reason, listening to this for a variety of reasons. If that <laughs> doesn't get you to discount David Leonhardt, I don't know what the fuck else I'm going to be able to say that will, except for maybe the next thing. So February 1st, 2021, uh, in a post called Good Vaccine News, he says, here's the key fact. All five vaccines with public results have eliminated COVID-19 deaths. We now know, of course, there are you know 30,000 plus breakthrough deaths of those that we know of because reporting is bad. The CDC also you know took his website where it reported that down. Um, get, a, get a load of this because I think this is um, <laughs> this is a really important... This one newsletter in particular I was kind of the most surprised by because some specific lines emerge here that I didn't remember happening quite as early, but are very interesting to me because it suggests, again, specifically once Biden was in office, Leonhardt became even more of a just sort of like, you know, regardless of what stimuli go in, you know, like whatever input in same output. Right. Right. Um, So he says, quote, Whether you realize it or not, you have almost certainly had a coronavirus. Coronaviruses have been circulating for decades, if not centuries, and they're often mild. Ah, what what, what month was this again? uh, The charge of the mild February 1st. February 1st, 2021. The common cold can be a coronavirus. Actually, the common cold is from the family of whatever. Anyway, (laughs) the world isn't going to eliminate coronaviruses or this particular one known as SARS-CoV-2 anytime soon. 
Yet we don't need to eliminate it for life to return to normal. February. February 1st, 2021. Barely even in office 30 days, not even. Thousands of people dying a day. Thousands. Case numbers that we would only come to top this year around this time. And he's gotten so much worse. (laughs) I know. Quote, we instead need to downgrade it from a deadly pandemic to a okay. normal virus. I'm sorry. Okay, that's so not within our control. There is yeah. no Wait manager who can downgrade <laughs> the pandemic is, to like a less deadly I, one. I, uh, okay. And a lot of things are like, wow, the strands are all coming together for me, man. Uh, <laughs> the, the, because the tone in both Leonhardt's most recent piece and then Barbaro's, you know, Robin to Leonhardt's Batman <laughs> questioning of Fauci uh, today oh my God. was just this. It was really about w- this question of like when and the future. Right. And the thing that like came across over and over again in, in the Barbaro interview well, I mean, we're, we're, we're like moving towards, would you say that we were there or we're moving towards <laughs> like when, you know, and he just keeps going on and on these like questioning about like the future. And, and that actually I feel is integral to, to the project is making this fictional future, the now right. uh-huh. in terms of public policy or the, by the Taking future, this, it's like the immediate future well, and, or and also collapsing, collapsing the distinction between endemicity or, you know, normalization and wherever we happen to be in the present moment, that those two points on a line are in fact coterminous yeah. with one another. I think just uh, a couple more quick things from this one from February 1st in particular. Um, get ready for this. I hope you all are sitting down. Okay. I know you're all sitting down because we're recording. I'm going to uh, sit down again just in case. Sitting harder. So he talked to Ashish Jha. For this, as Dr. Ashish Jha, the dean of the Brown University School of Public Health, told me this weekend, quote, I don't actually care about infections. I care about hospitalizations and death <laughs> and long term complications. If you've listened to our episode Vaxxed and Collapsed from early January, you will recognize that line yeah. as one of the main yes. <laughs> lines that has been, again, retrotted out, basically. Recall, you know, the. There is, I think we've talked about it before, like, you know, these, these path, these people have kind of like an idea in their head that there is a linear path to, you know, a quote unquote normal, despite the fact that obviously like normal was an emergency before, as like Astra said, when she was on, like normal is a crisis. Like there is this idea of a linear path to normal that we simply must follow. And it, it, what's clear as it emerges from this is that like a lot of those lines are just like unchanged they have continued to be the same and it Mm -hmm. basically is like repeated every time uh like some new information comes out regardless of if it's good or bad or whatever Mm -hmm. it's like okay well but in as phil's saying you know in the immediate future what's going to happen you know like will will we be able to soon anyway uh february 11th is his first pandemic in retreat in retreat uh thing february 12th the next day he releases something called covid absolutism what um saying, quote, in a public health emergency, absolutism is a very tempting response that people should cease all behavior that creates additional risks. Yeah, but girl, like, what are you talking about? Like, (laughs) yeah, if this is February 2021, what are you talking about? Yeah. 
Well, but that and that's kind of my point is that like if this is, I don't know, January, February 2022 and you're saying the same shit, like, first of all, obviously not credulous. Second of all, like that doesn't necessarily mean that this guy saying the same shit means that we're like on the cusp of normality and that we should like send everyone back to the fucking meat grinder or whatever by, by just sort of deciding that everything's over. Right. I don't, Um, I don't want to be like totally fatuous here, but a lot of this reminds me of like the run up to the invasion of Iraq in terms of, I mean, specifically like the role of the New York times and the, the quality, like the involutions of like the propaganda (laughs) and like the specificity of like future. Like, does anybody remember like the, the Friedman units, like Thomas Friedman was saying that like (laughs) we were six months away from, you know, total, total victory in Baghdad, you know, every over and over and over. over. Yeah. Every column for like eight years or something like it's starting. Yeah. It's that's exactly what Leonhardt's doing. Leonhardt units. You heard it here first. (laughs) Um, to continue, um, February 24th, the headline was no COVID zero, but normalcy, um, again, reinforcing the thing that, uh, I just mentioned in the previous newsletter, but writing quote in the coming months, COVID will. So after, first of all, doing a comparison saying like soon we'll have soon the flu will be a meaningful comparison to COVID says, quote, in the coming months, COVID will probably recede as a result of vaccinations and growing natural immunity, but it will not disappear. Then he quotes Dr. Amesh Ajala of Johns Hopkins telling him, quote, some people have gotten this idea that we're going to get to COVID zero. That's not realistic. It's a fantasy. One of the people that he cites in this, he literally embeds a tweet from Stefan Baral. Oh, my God, really? Yep. Um, reading risk assessment, question mark. Absolutely. Uh, exclamation point oh my God. risk mitigation question mark absolutely risk management absolutely risk communication absolutely risk elimination impossible anyway not to like belabor uh the point basically like over the course of you know basically the entire year 2021 and into now he's like continued this line you know april 19th like quote victory over covid will not involve its elimination etc saying in the same one if you're vaccinated a mask is more of a symbol of solidarity than anything else when the cdc drops its mask mandate he praises them for quote-unquote finally catching up to the science and anyway you know i could i could go on basically but a lot of these are kind of like versions of uh you know these as as you can tell these are like versions of each other right basically like if you look through almost any of these they're pretty much like echoing the same lines no matter the circumstances which is you know including like in the fall when cases are going up and you know deaths are rising again Mm -hmm. it's like echoing of the same lines right that we're like almost a herd immunity that we're almost that like the sign is that um your individual risk is low i was just gonna say if i can draw the analogy to the run-up to the invasion of iraq um out even further it seems like you know Endemic endemic diseases are basically just permanent costs, right? Like they have to be mitigated in perpetuity. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a worst of both worlds scenario because they continue to cause like some level of morbidity and death, but they still you still have to spend money to mitigate them. But the parallel that I'm, I'm drawing, you know, to the discourse around uh, the invasion of Iraq is that this is kind of like a hearts and minds argument. Like, yeah, everything is already 
everything is basically already open. Like there are not many COVID restrictions in place, especially by now. Right. Like I can I can see why there were some sort of like policy things for David Leonhardt to to pick at, you know, last year at this time. Right. As of now, there aren't any more really because there are, just aren't that many, you know, public health measures that are still in place. And in David Leonhardt's like writing, and maybe this is kind of where you're going, Artie, and I don't want to like steal your thunder, but like, you know, it seems like now the problem is not like whether there's uncertainty as to whether we've reached herd immunity, right? The problem certainly isn't the number of cases. Like we're not supposed to care about that at all. You know, the problem is that people have like fear in their hearts that is like preventing them from just like, you know, living, laughing and loving from forever. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so, no, <laughs> yeah. The question is, but from what? From what? Well, exactly. Right. It's not fear. fear of, of it's what? COVID. Like it's fucking COVID. <laughs> yes. That's like making people sick. That's killing people. That is like forcing things to grind to a halt. Like for the first <laughs> time in my adult life, like I went to the grocery store and like there was not a lot of stuff on the, you know, like I was like noticing shortages for the first time in in my life. And I know that that's like, it's because of COVID. Like, it's not because people are just like overly scared about the virus that they're like, oh, like, I don't know, like, can't, can't, yeah. can't restock the shelves today. It's like, no, this, like, this virus is causing massive disruption, regardless of how people are feeling about it. Like, I mean, regardless not- of whether the promise that was made was appropriate to be made, right? Because ultimately, the people that are like upset about this, the people like Matt Iglesias or David Leonhardt, who are writing commentary that are like trying to hasten things, right, which is just going to continue to spread disease, they're all saying that they're coming from this framework of like, we were promised, right, that once we had the vaccine, we would get there. And early on, I think a lot of them think about the debate early on as being like, well, it was really a debate between like the Great Barrington Declaration folks and herd immunity through like, you know, a full letter rip strategy without a vaccine and uh, herd immunity through the vaccine. Right. And there was no there was no range of possible outcomes that ever like was outside of those two options. Right. It ended within a year one way or another. And it was just really about like which team you were on. And I think a lot of people like it's clear that that framework is still like carried forward. Right. And for people who are very committed to the the sort of vax strategy, right? Like like Iglesias and like Leonhardt, they they were full on team. Like once we have vax, we will reopen. And the fact of the matter is, like whether that's real or not, they're trying to make it real. But if it's like a blue table, you can't call it black and like say that you're telling the truth, <laughs> right? Well, I mean, what you what you you can do two. What they're doing is, is two things. One is it's chicken soup for the soul, right? That's <laughs> essentially it. Is the you know. Um, but I think the reason that that is, is that they've, where they are, where they've in place their, themselves as, as uh, makers of, of reality is you'll notice that there's no definition of a uh, uh, specific definition or unchanging definition for them of what normal is. Sometimes it's endemicity. Sometimes it's something else. Normality is like usually what they use, but what it really is. So I don't think it has, a, I, I think they do have a definition of it. But I don't think it's epidemiological in any way. I think, and you can hear that in in you know Barbaro questioning Fauci or any of these num- number of these sort of uh, uh, position pieces. But the the definition of normal is simply and only when most of the time we don't have to write about this. Right. Most of the time we don't have to think about it, and that is simply a state of which there's a stochastic 
increases and decreases daily, monthly, weekly in death, but we don't think about them. And, um, and we don't treat them or attribute them as something that's the function of government policy. And I think that it's very reflective to me of, of what the United States fiscal policy and economic policy response to COVID was, which, you know, sometimes it's like incorrectly described as well. They weren't trying to simulate economic activity. They were trying to freeze it in place or, you know, make it possible for people to stay home from work. But that's not really what they did in the end. What they did in the end was re-stimulate much of economic activity and uh, make it possible for people to you know, maybe be unemployed for a little bit. But but at the end of the day, the the point was to move things back, and and things did. Um, you know, there it, the the level of unemployment that was sustained in quarter two of twenty twenty was not sustained in part because of the policy choices that we took. And this is that's sort of what normal means is that we don't have to rethink what the economy is. We don't really have to think what the role of government and society is. That all of that. They've deemed for one reason or another, uh, I, you know, and maybe it's because they genuinely think that the, the differences among people on these things is so immutable. Or maybe it's because they think that the power of government to do things is you're so limited because they bought into that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they don't have any imagination about that. And so the only version of normal that they can imagine, and I think you said this, you know, in, in another way, be earlier is, is is pre 2016. Right. I mean, that's it. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I mean, that, that's the thing. That's what, that's what makes them sound so petulant. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you're talking to <laughs> yeah. Fauci is like, when they're dialing just, up are, are we, the yeah. CDC, like fucking Uber eats, like from their Twitter accounts being like, um, <laughs> can we get some vaccine guidance for under fives? Can we get a, yeah. Can we get, it's more like, can we get the, uh, the mask mandate removed finally, yeah, yeah, which is yeah. even like at POTUS, it's been eight weeks since the vaccine was available to children. Time to stop requiring masks in school. Well, I mean, I want to point out one of these things. I'm not going to read like specific parts from it, but I want to point out that for instance, when, uh, I, I mentioned that, for instance, like when the um, CDC took uh, its masking recommendation away in May 2021, which we've talked about endlessly on this show as like a very important turning point, which obviously yeah. which had clear dialectic effects basically on the the how the pandemic then proceeded from that point. Before that, he basically he was already writing uh, columns saying going off both like statements from literally Ashish Jha, but also from a bunch of the assumptions that he was making in his own column, basically that once you were vaccinated, that spread was impossible uh, or if not impossible was like extremely low. He was already, he was one of these guys who was complaining about, you know, when exactly do we roll away the masking uh, recommendation? When, when do we stop uh, suggesting that people mask? And it's true enough. That's one of the reasons why, for instance, like he, when when the CDC lifts the masking again suggestion right the the like got their they when they change their guidelines for masking he like praises it as them catching up with the science something like eight days later is when he tweets it seems like the pandemic may be in permanent retreat right now. right right and then the the reason that I that I mention this and that I kind of harp on this is because this echoes basically exactly what he's talking about now i mean and Mm -hmm. all these people are now they're saying like you know now is the time we should talk about like how soon not not only like oh like what the timeline is but like can we just fucking get it over with basically and stop it with all the masking and stop it with all 
of this caring because like we all know that you know according to this sort of like again like mass like slow boiled inculcated hegemonic ideal of like you're just fine and despite the rampant uh spread of the virus and like the continuing like thousands of people dying a day now not only just like in the columns that like were a year ago that i was talking about that like you know you've done the like morally correct thing or whatever and anyone who's dying is like uh morally culpable for their own death right and it's not your fault and you shouldn't fucking care about it you shouldn't care like it's admirable to care about other people right mm-hmm. is like what they but the, what, literally but the what science they say, says but, that you should live your life in a way that reflects that you've been vaccinated right. the idea of solidarity <laughs> yeah. is admirable however science scientifically speaking not encouraged well, i mean that these people Look, security is not something that the government gives you it's something that you purchase with your consumer power yeah. right security is a good it's a consumable um, service and it is like a luxury that you have to earn through hard work, bootstraps, or inheritance in the United States, and that's also part of this too. Is that you know I think to the to the average COVID minimizer who especially ascribes to the idea that people who are unvaccinated are doing uh, so as some sort of psychic resistance to democratic control of the United States, which I very much think is their hysterical frame there that is driving their behavior. They think that it is this kind of like you know, intentional resistance to them having like reclaimed the White House. Right. And in that along those lines, they feel entitled to say those people do not deserve membership in the citizenry anymore. Those people have like, according Mm -hmm. to Rawlsian ideology, declared themselves unfit citizens who have like rejected this. Therefore, like my obligations towards them as fellow human beings are non-existent because they are like not only others, but they are like others who are like too stupid to help themselves, which is like the very classic idea in roles, right? Is like, if you can't like earn money, then you're not a person. And if you can't take enough sense to buy yourself the precautions necessary, whether that's a nice home, you know, the education you need to have a job that means you can work from home if you're worried about COVID or the money to buy all the goddamn PPE so you can one way mask your way out of this bullshit. Right. Like if you're not smart enough to do that, you're not like a part of the body politic to these people. They don't care. They consider this like a meritocracy where everybody's like working hard to earn their place and earn their chance to buy security, not like the kind of society in which the government steps in to try and like alleviate harm. Yeah. Well, and I also just want to note the like, again, going back to the I'm, you know, I'm just a generalist data expert and you know we all have something to contribute i just want to touch on like the megalomania of these people like you know you shouldn't do things that put other people in like harm's way or put other people at risk is like a pretty like settled you know ethical principle but like these guys like they literally took you know maybe when they were in undergrad they took a class in like research statistics where they like learned how to do a two-tailed t-test or some shit and to, like that is now the thing that is giving them the license to like reformulate, you know, like I've said several times on the podcast, I think like the pandemic, like what's happening is that the social contract is kind of like being reformulated in this very sort of sinister way in terms of like what we can expect from government and whatever else. But, you know, I think that these these guys, people like David Leonhard, you know, Matt Iglesias, classic example, 
just like the megalomania of being like, well, I'm a person who like understands data, like time for me to fundamentally reformulate like a, a core tenet of public ethics that like we all understand. <laughs> like, I don't know. I just I find it very galling, like the degree to which like these folks feel that their quantitative expertise empowers them to just be like, no, no, no. Like all the ethical commitments that you thought you had, like the ethical code that you think you live by, like none of that matters because the unvaccinated, you know, they've they've had their chance. <laughs> so like it's it's time to stop. You know, it's not like these things just sort of like happen in in op-eds and then become official policy, too. There are all these sort of downstream consequences of the like quest for normal, right? It it has obviously like consequences in terms of like policies that govern workplaces and workplace protections, whether schools are open and closed, right? But there are these other sort of ways that it becomes like more institutionalized. And one of the things that happened this week is just the perfect example of that. And that is the urgency of normal toolkit that was released. That is a advocacy toolkit that was designed to um, essentially make it easier for the average person to advocate for schools (laughs) to be open. Um, They say, quote, it is, Uh, As scientists and physicians, our role is to inform people with accurate data to help frame risk by putting data into context and to provide nuanced guidance about complex issues. But basically, the toolkit is full of bad cherry-picked data perspectives that are completely out of context. And it is this kind of like activist toolkit for turning people into little baby Emily Austers. Activist is a broad term here, yeah. It's like extremely great Barrington declaration, like a bunch of extremely paternalistic loser MDs get together with a WordPress and like a bottle of wine and and pretty soon it's like, here's our like 10-page PDF on how we can give everybody COVID. 23. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. The urgency of normal is like, I mean, it's a piece of shit, which we'll get into, but um, (laughs) it's funny because like, you know, you tried and like, I kind of just want to give them a gold star because like, I don't know, like the right wing, like AstroTurf organizations are so far ahead of these folks. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like in terms of their like organizing, in terms of their messaging, their like advocacy strategies. And it's just like, oh, okay. Like you guys made like a PowerPoint. Congrats. But this is like, it's so, it's interesting to me because it's like, they're very clearly targeting the sort of more reasonable liberal suburban <laughs> liberal, liberal suburban school districts right that's like that's totally the target well here. and they even say like well this really is for highly vaccinated places <laughs> like mm. this guidance so some of the things that they get into are these like classic uh claims that we've seen like covid is a flu like illness is the one they specifically start with the whole framework basically is the ideas that this is a new kind of focus protection strategy that they're proposing. They mention it explicitly that essentially, you know, to them, COVID is both flu-like and poses no real risk. And that without this risk of severe disease, uh, there really is no reason to be keeping kids home. And so what they want to do is try and empower people with like the data and facts necessary in order to be able to like turn around and, you know, weaponize this against their local teachers union. Right. So can we get into some of the claims that they're making in here and like some of the ways that they've uh, been able to basically just kind of only show or say what uh, 
conveniently supports these points that they're trying to argue. I, I was sort of taken by the fact that uh, they're so, some of the claims that, that they're making, uh, they've been pushed on and, and, you know, I don't even know forced to concede, but they've just been like decimated so many times. It's sort of striking that they're going to continue to make them. One being that they're just saying that like, it's, it's, it's actually better out there for kids than the flu when the flu has killed how many? Like five uh, people or like, like five four kids or five or in the it's last like comparable. two years. Right. Yeah. Whereas like COVID is killed. I mean, COVID is filling up pediatric uh, hospitals and it killed what, like 25, 26 uh, kids last week. So, I mean, it like, so there, there's some, you know, real gems in here, but like the, the thing that's like striking to me is they really don't, they're really intending this to be, look, we're doctors, uh, trust us. You don't have to actually look at our claims at all. Right. Um, but because what they're saying is so like, Po- uh, positively refutable which like uh, in every way right well yeah. like which as abby pointed out for example their citation again these are like here we're going to use our pedigree as doctors <laughs> to show you that it's really cool to you know do the beyblade strategy and just like throw your kids into the meat chip meat grinder or whatever right um like their citation for covid being as abby pointed out to us their citation for covid being like less or as uh being like relatively comparable to like flu mortality risk in children was literally a link to like the cdc webpage on influenza yeah. or something like which is does not have data that bears that cdc.gov slash flu slash about slash cool. burden so about the <laughs> flu so, right. burden cool. dot php <laughs> Great. Yeah, yeah well and like the the citations that they marshal in support of their other claims, I looked through some of them. There are various like threads floating around Twitter kind of doing this uh, in a more comprehensive way. But the citations that they marshal for some of the other claims don't say what they are claiming that they say. So like in this on this same slide where they, they claim that COVID is a flu like risk to unvaccinated children, which it's not. They have another statement about how I'm quoting long COVID is not a major risk to children. And the thing that they like the I I actually went and looked at the um, the citation that they included for that. The citation is a meta analysis. So it's like pooling results from a bunch of studies that have been done. And the meta analysis is comparing right post viral illness or, you know, lingering symptoms among cases that tested positive for covid and controls that did not test positive for covid. So right off the bat, right, like this is a comparison. This is not saying anything about like the absolute level of risk, you know, right. uh, that long COVID poses. They're comparing, you know, people who tested positive for COVID to people who didn't. But even with that, they say that people who tested positive for COVID did report more cognitive difficulties, headache, loss of smell, sore throat and sore eyes. There were a bunch of other symptoms that were not different between those two groups, like uh myalgia, insomnia, um, abdominal pain, stuff like that. So, you know, they're saying long COVID is not a major risk to children. I know this study because, you know, it's floating around all the time. Like specifically this urgency of normal crew mm-hmm. is constantly, you know, deploying this study like a weapon to be like, well, you know, a lot of people who say they have long COVID turns out they never even tested positive for COVID, but it's like, okay, but the study is, is the study is actually showing that long COVID like is a thing. <laughs> So, right. you know, like they're just they're just blatantly misrepresenting 
um, what's in this citation. And I mean, like I said, there are some threads floating around on Twitter. Like they make really grave misrepresentations like this um, kind of throughout throughout the the presentation and they seem to be getting slammed for it which they should be well i mean the the whole thing that they're really proposing is this sort of focus protection plus that i've been calling it which i i think is like the the new i think focus protection is really we're going to see this becoming like the new topic after endemicity as a sort of framework for normal is thoroughly debunked because i think one, the fact that there isn't very much like actual uh, scientific like study, focus protection doesn't mean anything. It's not like an existing public it's health strategy. It's from the Great Barrington Declaration. Like they coined yeah. right. focus Literally. protection. Right. It, it, it doesn't like pre-exist. There's no history of RCTs that show the efficacy of focus protection. You know, these people are so quick to say, well, there's no study that says that in schools masks help at all. So we should have kids like take their masks off now, whether they're vaccinated or not. But like when you turn to like, well, why what supports your theory of using focus protection? They cite a uh, diagram from 2010 from the CDC about how to put your mask on. And <laughs> one thing from the UK NHS that says that boosters are somewhat effective at like reducing illness and death in like vulnerable populations right right? so but this is the thing like when it says when basically the strategy is again quote unquote focus protection which is like the idea that you have what extra mitigation measures taken for uh people who are medically vulnerable for whatever reason first of all again that like imagines that people like live outside of society but also it's like when you actually scratch the surface of that including like rochelle Walensky's comments like a couple Mm -hmm. weeks ago when you actually scratch the surface of that it's like Oh, we mean like, you know, making sure that people who are medically vulnerable get like boosters or like, you know, if possible, that they're basically like, you know, siloed away from society for the rest of their lives or at least until like, you know, maybe it like stops or whatever. Here's my here's my question. Okay, like, you know, pretending that I'm Karl Marx writing capital. Right. And just taking (laughs) capitalism as if it functions perfectly. Right. Like um, taking focus protection at like its most charitable reading right right? like say focus protection does really work my question is how do you square right this kind of focused protection approach with everything else that's being said right how do we square focused protection with with what david leonhardt is telling us like needs to happen before the midterms right like I feel like it just gives the lie to the whole thing because it's like, but the the things that you're actually advocating doing are like just going back to normal. And, you know, they're like, oh, well, we're going to we're going to make sure that, you know, we we carve out this space of protection for vulnerable people. But, you know, I mean, how how can that happen in the context of the break of the greater you know framework that they're proposing, first of all? And like, second of all, how like has that happened at all? Over the past two years, like, I just don't understand how you can square these two things. But we've been doing focus protection. I mean, like, that's what we've been doing this whole time. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work to reduce case numbers. It doesn't work to stop deaths. It doesn't work to stop breakthrough deaths either. Right. And their way of proposing focus protection in this is as if it is this like golden strategy, right? They they say like the vulnerable must not be forgotten. That's an yeah. old, by the way. Even with vaccines available, some people will remain at risk of severe disease from COVID infections. 
They must not be forgotten, but that doesn't mean you have to actively think about them or do anything about it. It's admirable for you to think of them. (laughs) Right. And this just comes back to what we're talking about, right? Focus protection is all that we have. It's all that we are, you know, allowed to have both like materially and discursively. And so (laughs) the conversation then just moves to a place of like, okay, well, how do you like what mindfulness strategies can you adopt to like not freak out as like, you know, a pandemic continues to like ravage your community? It's on Um, the vulnerable to remove themselves from society. I mean, they're very explicit about that. And it's under this whole framework kind of of this like malingering mindset that's very similar to the approach to like the long COVID study that you mentioned, Abby, where, you know, it's sort of like, oh, all these people say they have long COVID, but they never tested positive. In their focus protection slide, they say, if you think you are at elevated risk, discuss with your doctor. It is common for members of the general public to incorrectly estimate their personal risk. Which is... I want to point out language almost exactly like David Lee and Hart's. Yeah. Well, of course. Yes. But so, so, but this is, but the, that, that actually illustrates the nice connection with them. And I think sort of what we can conclude about the, the way that they're clocking things right now, which is at some point far earlier in the pandemic, the debate. And if you think about great Barrington, uh, the great Barrington declaration, they were so committed to, we're going to beat these people. We're going to beat down um, what's coming out of CDC and what's coming out of traditional public health. We're going to beat it down through our own epidemiology. We're going to we're going to show them, with, you know, with the data or whatever um, that they are wrong. Or we're going to use, you know, the language or rhetoric of empiricism to um, to demolish them uh, in some way, right? At some point, and I don't know when, and I don't think it, it's necessary, it might be important when to say, but it's uh, at some point, I think the players in this game realized that none of that mattered because we weren't, because public health epidemiologists were so institutionally disempowered uh, already, always already here and that people uh, didn't. Uh, or or we're coming to not trust. There was already a social divide on the question of trust in precautionary strategies. And so at some point it's okay, we'll just dispense with that because what people are familiar with is personal health and well-being nostrums. And you don't even have to, you don't, you don't have to persuade people on the evidence. You don't have to convince them. All you have to do is tell them something that will comfort them. And then, if they end up dying or their kid gets sick or is it, uh, you know what we told you there are risks uh, and you accepted them, <laughs> you know, but that's sort of, but the, at, at, at this point, the calculation is, and, and again, I think you can hear them like the frustration, even with Barbaro's frustration with, with Fauci. And he's so sort of petulantly questioning him is just, it's, it's not a matter of epidemiology uh, for them anymore if it ever was uh it's a matter of when is you know they're telling time politically um yeah and it's a question of when can i return to doing things as i did and when when can i stop caring and the thing is it's so clear 
that they don't, that even the, the people who profess to be the sort of uh, enlightened data-driven liberals, that they don't actually understand how things converge once a bunch of individual behaviors are summed up to form a collectivity. And in the, and in the case of these uh, urgency of normal, they don't even care. Uh, and they wouldn't be, you know, that's, that's not even a category. Well, I think the thing too, is that it sort of fits into this, this framework that is pre-existing, right? Which is one where medical authorities like have this propensity and there is this long history of the sort of clinicalization of like collective anxiety, right? And we pathologize people who we don't believe about their own illnesses as sort of being part of this, you know, group of people that don't have like the proper experts perspective that would allow them insight into explaining why the symptoms that they feel in their body are just anxiety. Right. And as history is borne out, right, like a lot of the things that we used to claim are anxiety, like we have come to find our conditions that the medical establishment has then legitimized. Right. And I think what we see here around specifically the urgency of normals framework is this idea that like the way to solve COVID is we need a conscious de-escalation of fear, right? They t- they say we need to quote talk. That's literally one of their top recommend right. recommendations. Recommendations is de-escalate fear around getting COVID. Right, and this to me, just as soon as I read something like that, especially coming from a group of people who are saying basically, listen to me because I am a medical expert, and that's the only reason why, right? They're not even providing real backup for people to do their own research here, right? They're saying, I'm an expert and I say people need to de-escalate fear around getting well, COVID. It's just like classic using credentials to like advance a ideological point without right, ha- exactly. having any bearing on right. like they're, they, these are I mean, I think the citation stuff that has been brought up here, like how how like loose and shitty their citations uh, are and how the studies that they're citing, many of them don't even, as Abby was pointing out, say necessarily what it says uh, that they assert that it does. Or there's another example that, uh, you know, they they pull mortality data from the UK. Yeah, interesting choice. <laughs> instead of like the US, which have had a very different... Has yeah. A well, different because pro- it's I mean, about... Not perfect, but like a different approach to like schools. The yeah. UK's right? data are about child deaths. They pull data about hospitalization and death from the UK. And I really think... Because I was like, hmm, why would, you, why would you pick UK data? And I really think they did it so that they could say on the slide that no children have died of COVID. Yeah, exactly. Present, like, like, you, can't you can't say that with the U.S. <laughs> I don't know that you can say that with the U.K. either. But yeah, there's nothing about this that is like a real legitimate yeah. proposal. This is like explicitly to mislead. It's a piece of like, um, you know, constructed data driven like manipulation and rhetoric. See, this is why I maintain we need our version of, you know, the urgency of normal or the Great Barrington Declaration or whatever. We need one of these shitty WordPress sites where we can, you know, say all the stuff that we stand for, uh, paid shutdowns and Medicare for all and, you know, a whole whole bunch of other stuff, uh, carceral abolition. Um, and we can call it like the Burlington Coat Factory. You yeah, know? perfect. Like, um, that'll be... You're going to like the coats that you wear, I... <laughs> Basically, promise it. <laughs> you will enjoy the coats that you wear. I certify it. We should. I think we should uh, wrap up probably. But one last, one final thing I would like to point to. Um, this is not a super substantive thing, but I think it really tells you <laughs> what you actually need to know about um, the urgency of normal, which 
you know, aside from its, you know, obviously ridiculous name is that if you go on the urgency of normal website, which I do not recommend that you do, but if you do and you click on the media tab, there are exactly two pieces of media there. (laughs) One is their like urgency of normal webinar uh, Mm -hmm. video. And the other piece of media is a clip labeled on navigating cancel culture i love it so that well i think that's a good place to leave it for today abby thank you as always for joining us and uh patrons thank you for supporting the show if you want to help us out a little bit more share the show with your friends post about your favorite episodes pre-order health communism or follow us at death panel underscore before you say the sign off can i leave you guys with one last david leonhart nugget of wisdom oh hell yeah here's a tweet from David Leonhart, January 26th of this year. Less COVID spread doesn't always mean better public health. It can mean worse. David Leonhart forever. Yeah. Hey, David. <laughs> oh, makes you smart, think. Smart, smart guy. Yeah, really makes you think. Exactly. Makes you think. Well, listeners, we'll catch you later in the week in the main feed. As always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
like what they're talking yeah, about. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Oh, no, but you don't have to worry about that with Michael Barbara because he asked the same question seven <laughs> times. Over By the way, over. so what you're saying is that it's good that people don't care about the pandemic anymore. So yeah? what you're saying, so, Dr. Fauci. <laughs> so what you're saying, Dr. Fauci, is that it's bad if children are infected with disease. <laughs> I was led to understand that it was a, a good thing, huh. you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Huh. Oh God. Uh. Huh. <laughs> it's really changed. I was surprised we um sorry, I guess we should we should get started in a second. But like I was surprised how you know we made the well, we all have to do our vocal exercise. Yeah. Our, our <laughs> Michael Barbaro <laughs> vocal <laughs> exercise. <laughs> 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 he sounds in the interview today, okay, this is my, my my last thing, and I'm sorry, but like he sounded like he was gonna burst into tears. Like you know how I ghost know. face like sounds like he's on the verge of bursting into tears at all times. Like Michael Barbaro had yes. the same vibe today. 